This is a special rebroadcast of the Rutgers President's Annual Address. Every year, Dr. Richard McCormick, the president of Rutgers University, invites students, faculty, staff, alumni, and other members of the Rutgers community to the multipurpose room of the Rutgers Student Center on College Avenue. He speaks about issues at Rutgers, challenges the university is facing, successes of the past year, and plans for the future. After the address, members of the Rutgers community can ask Dr. McCormick a question. And traditionally, he stays until all questions have been answered. This broadcast contains the President's Address, delivered Friday, September 24th at 1.10 p.m., and the question and answer session that followed. During the address, a number of students stood up and interrupted Dr. McCormick, attempting to ask questions or make statements regarding the plight of undocumented students who may live in New Jersey but are forced to pay out-of-state tuition. You can hear Dr. McCormick and Professor Paul Paniotados, who is currently the chair of the University Senate, ask the students to wait until the end and ask their questions with everyone else. The final student who interrupts the address declares that if Dr. McCormick will not listen to them right now, they will not listen to him either, after which approximately 30 students got up and left the address. They departed silently, holding what appeared to be red Rutgers t-shirts up in the air. As they left, they received some applause... However, the president also received some applause when he stated that everyone is invited to wait until the end of the address and state their piece then. Fortunately, one of their number returned to ask a question during the question and answer session, and you can hear him state their case at that point. The president's address traditionally takes place at the first university senate meeting of the year, which was chaired by Professor Paniotados, who introduces Dr. McCormick. And the first item on the agenda, the second and the main event, is the annual addressed to the university community by President McCormick. So without further ado, President McCormick. Thank you, Professor Panyatados, and, and to everyone, good afternoon. We meet today at a time of unprecedented challenges and opportunities for Rutgers. In this, my eighth annual address, I will offer my perspective on these realities and I hope chart a pathway ahead for our university. With us today are several dozen members of our boards of governors, trustees, and overseers, including the chair of our board of governors, Ralph Izzo, alumni leaders, representatives of the Parents Association, and above all, Rutgers students, faculty, and staff. Thank you for your presence and for all you do for Rutgers. May I say, especially to my faculty and staff colleagues, thank you for carrying on work that is responsible for the achievements and successes of which Rutgers is so proud. Thank you for your shared sacrifices in the interest of protecting our university. Rutgers is Rutgers because of you, and it will fulfill its goals and solve its problems because of you. To everyone who is present, may I say this. Rutgers has become one of the best public research universities in the world, and it will remain so by meeting the challenges we face. But attaining our bold ambitions for Rutgers and responding effectively to the compelling issues before us will require difficult strategic choices and carefully chosen directions, both now and for the years ahead. 
I take seriously my responsibility as president to articulate these choices and directions, but they are not mine alone. They've been gleaned over time, through myriad experiences at Rutgers, and above all, by listening to you. Over the course of the past academic year, as I promised I would on this occasion last September, I visited with faculty and staff in every school and college on our three campuses and listened closely as they shared their plans, their opportunities, and the hard decisions they are facing. The most common feature of those 20 meetings was the inspiring expression of academic goals. These included new programs in education, up-to-date and technologically advanced modes of instruction, innovative ways of assessing student learning, and, and women and men whom we were not previously teaching. At these same meetings, I also heard about our university's signature mission of research. In fields where Rutgers has opportunities and comparative advantages, where, 21st, where the 21st century world has needs, where our students have interests, and where resources are available. Faculty and staff also told me about their own and their students' application of knowledge in real-world circumstances through legal clinics and healthcare clinics in Camden and Newark, within the schools of New Brunswick, on farms across New Jersey, and in private sector and nonprofit institutions around our state and beyond. As I tried to pull together what I had heard from my colleagues, it added up to a portrait of a remarkably ambitious and already successful institution. So much of what we see at Rutgers today bears out what I heard in those meetings. Rutgers has its all-time largest enrollment on all three of our campuses, with more out-of-state and international students than ever, more diversity, and more students with very high academic achievements. There are signature courses in the School of Arts and Sciences and Byrne Family First Year Seminars enrolling, enrolling fully half of our first year students in New Brunswick. New undergraduate curricula in Newark and New Brunswick. Expanded opportunities on every campus for students to engage in research. More off-campus and online programs than ever before. And in Camden, two strategically selected new doctoral programs one in computational and integrative biology, and the other in public affairs. Last week, we received fresh evidence of our success in educating students for lives of achievement. The Wall Street Journal surveyed nearly 500 corporate recruiters to ask their preferences for hiring college students. They ranked Rutgers 21st among all universities in the nation. The great majority of the top 25 were drawn from among the country's leading public research universities because those institutions are perceived to prepare students well for work and leadership in today's economy. This is exactly the group of universities. What are you doing to help? You just put on top to the students for paying high-state rates. Are you taking corrective action towards international Okay, as you know... And, and if, I will um, I will take questions on every uh, subject and any subject, and I'll stay till the last question has been asked. Uh, so if you'll listen to me, uh, I'll then listen to you. Uh, the great majority of the top 25 universities cited in that Wall Street Journal article were drawn from among the country's leading public research universities 
because those institutions are perceived to prepare students well for leadership and work in today's economy. This is exactly the group of universities in which Rutgers always wants to find itself. In research last year, our faculty won more than $430 million in new support for their investigations, most of it from the federal government. This is an increase from $390 million the previous year, which was in turn an even bigger jump from the year before that. Rutgers has identified and successfully targeted for support areas of research where we can make a difference to something important. Highway safety, childhood nutrition, wireless technology, urban entrepreneurship, alternative energy, and many more. The faculty and staff with whom I met last year were justifiably proud of their initiatives in research and of the practical uses to which their new knowledge was being put. Rutgers faculty in the arts and humanities expressed equal pride, and rightly so, in creations and discoveries that increased the store of human art and wisdom. But these points of pride were not the only things I heard about in my meetings with faculty and staff in every school. I also heard about severe shortages of resources, the loss of valuable staff, the outstanding graduate students for whom there was inadequate support, the inability to make many of the faculty and TA appointments that were needed, and the shortage of well-equipped classrooms and laboratories. These observations were valid, and if anything, they are even truer today than they were a year ago. What are Why don't you wait until the end? What are the causes of these problems? How has the university responded to them? And most important, how will we solve these problems for the future? The remainder of my remarks today will be entirely devoted to answering these questions. The most significant cause of the budget problems is the two decades long decline of governmental support for public higher education in America. President Obama recently declared that education is the economic issue of our times. It is sobering then that the United States, which once led the world in the percentage of adults with college degrees, now ranks 12th out of 36 developed nations in this category. State after state, even California, which is synonymous with public support for higher education, has been dramatically reducing funding for colleges and universities. New Jersey's track record may be worse than most, but it is far from alone. What a historic change this is from the decades between World War II and the 1980s when my parents' generation of Americans made continuous new commitments to higher education through government at every level. Those commitments were based on the belief that the whole society benefited when growing numbers of men and women had access to college uh, and when uh, universities were entrusted to address boldly the most important challenges facing humankind. And what world historic changes those investments in American higher education brought about. Vast increases in the number and diversity of college students, the invention of whole new institutions like community colleges, and through university-based research, the elevation of the American economy to international preeminence and the solutions to problems ranging from human health to the preservation of our environment.
Now the theory is that a college education benefits only the person who receives it, and so he or she should pay the cost. What a change in the social contract between government and public higher education, between government and the people. And while states across America are spending ever less on colleges and universities, other countries around the world are committing more resources to higher education and university research. How much has Rutgers been affected by this American trend away from government investments and especially state investments in higher education? It has been affected a lot. This year, Rutgers... Are you aware of the thousands of dreams that are being deferred right now because of the current university Why are you trying to alienate a body that's sympathetic to your cause? That's my question. So I asked how much Rutgers has been affected by this American trend away from government investments and especially state investments in higher education. And it, the answer is it's been affected a lot. This year, Rutgers operating aid from the state of New Jersey, which has been declining for many years, has now fallen back to the actual dollar level of 1994 when Rutgers had 10,000 fewer students than it does today and when the dollar was worth much more than it is today. The most recent state budget cuts for Rutgers include a mid-year rescission of $18.5 million last spring, followed by a $46 million reduction for the current year. And unlike last year, there are no federal stimulus dollars to soften the blow. The reductions in our budget have been caused not only by the long-term pattern of disinvestment in higher education, but by other developments as well. Most recent and most important is the severe and relentlessly continuing economic downturn, which has dramatically decreased the revenues received by the state. Not just higher education, but practically everything the government does has seen reductions, and not just in New Jersey, but around the country. Other long-term causes of our budgetary condition include the ever-increasing burden of governmental regulations, reporting requirements, and unfunded mandates. In many instances, these demands have led to good educational outcomes and to necessary forms of accountability. But they are expensive and time-consuming, and they diminish the resources directly available for our academic programs. Yet another cause of our budget problems is the inexorable competitive pressures from some of the best and the best-financed private colleges and universities. We go head-to-head -head with them for top students and faculty, and their ability to make generous investments in their programs has driven up the costs that Rutgers must pay. The budget reductions caused by all of these trends have severely affected every department, school, and unit at Rutgers with impacts that are similar to those I heard about in my visits to the schools and colleges last year, only now they are worse. Even with the tuition cap imposed by the state, moreover, many of our students and their families are struggling to pay the bills. Those receiving tuition aid grants are getting less than expected because the demand for this assistance has been so high across the state. So far, Rutgers has maintained the economic as well as ethnic diversity of its student body, but we must be concerned about how to remain accessible to students from low-income families and from families who are suffering in this recession. So that's my brief summary of the budget problems. What is Rutgers doing about them now, 
and what will we do going forward? Most onerously, as each of you knows, the university has taken the drastic step of imposing a salary freeze for faculty and staff. Withholding, withholding salary increases while permitted by our contracts is a significant burden for all our employees, especially for those who were at the lower ranges of pay, those who may have a partner who lost a job, those who were counting on a salary increase to help pay for a child's college education or for the mortgage on a home. Like you, I personally know Rutgers employees who are experiencing each of these painful problems and sometimes several at once. They are very worried and very hurt. But the alternatives are even worse. In Illinois, university employees were compelled to take furlough days without pay this spring on top of a salary freeze. In Wisconsin, mandatory furloughs over a two-year period will result in annual pay cuts of more than 3%. In Maryland, university employees are in their third straight year of furloughs. In Louisiana, university faculty and staff are facing layoffs in a terrible employment environment where some will not be able to find new jobs. Unfortunately, Rutgers, too, will have some layoffs, but far fewer than if the university paid the salary increases. We did not make this decision lightly, and we do not wish for any employee to suffer economic hardship. But we believe that shared sacrifice hews to the Rutgers spirit and is more humane than the alternatives we have before us. The salary freeze is among several steps Rutgers is taking to respond to the current budget problems. We have continued to cut costs and to realize savings and efficiencies. We have grown our enrollments and thereby increased tuition revenue in selected fields and among targeted student populations. And we've made some carefully chosen investments that are paying dividends now and will pay more for the future. Let me briefly describe what we're doing in each of these areas and then turn our attention to the years ahead. Because, in fact, each of the actions I have just mentioned is a critical component of Rutgers' plans for the future. First, there are cost savings. Over the past two years, Rutgers has reduced its energy expenses by approximately 5%, despite adding almost 120,000 square feet of new space. We are anticipating additional energy savings of 7% this year, for an annual total savings of almost $5 million. Next month, the Office of Information Technology will begin phasing in a new internet-based phone system in New Brunswick, saving $1.4 million a year. Although Rutgers continues to invest in new faculty, as each dean knows, we have curtailed the number of faculty searches and sought to incentivize faculty retirements. All across our campuses, there are additional examples of savings and cost efficiencies, and I implore you, there need to be many more. Second, as noted above, we've increased enrollment, especially in targeted fields such as business and engineering, where student demand is very great. On our Camden campus, whose master plan includes significant expansion to accommodate growing college, the growing college-bound population of South Jersey, and on all our campuses among out-of-state, international, and non-traditional students who add so much to our university. These enrollment increases have produced crowded conditions on the buses, in the residence halls, and in our classrooms, but they have also brought in badly needed new revenue. 
Again, as each dean knows, the budget cuts to our schools would have been much worse this year without the enrollment increases. At the same time, we know that we cannot enroll our way out of our budget problems. Third, this year we have made selected investments despite our severe budgetary constraints because these investments are essential to the future excellence of Rutgers and because in many instances they have or soon will increased our revenues. These investments include nearly 130 new faculty in fields ranging from autism to municipal finance to high energy physics. New or improved facilities like the Gateway Building now under construction at the New Brunswick end of College Avenue, which will house the Barnes & Noble Rutgers Bookstore. The Proteomics Building, which is rising on the Bush campus, and the renovation of Olson Hall in Newark. The university has also made other notable investments this year, none more important than financial aid for our students who need help paying their bills. If we were not making these investments, Rutgers would be neither academically excellent nor physically sound in the years to come. The steps we are now taking and others like them will serve Rutgers well in the future. We hold in our hands Rutgers' destiny as a university and we bear responsibility for its future. You hold in your hands the destiny of thousands of people who came here who deserve an education. We want to know, as a yes or no answer, will you support this situation for them? We cannot wait until we have This is a pressing you'll come back so I'll have an opportunity to answer your questions after my speech. The steps we're taking now and others like them will serve Rutgers well in the future. We hold in our hands Rutgers' destiny as a university and we bear responsibility for its future. The current situation is painful, but Rutgers, like other public research universities, is in a time of historic transition. We can and will move successfully through the transition into a new era of greater achievement, but doing so will require sacrifice and will demand decisions that are not always easy or popular. For the future, our decisions should be marked by three qualities that I have already noted, cost savings and efficiencies, strategically chosen investments, and the generation of new revenues. Everything we undertake, every goal we set must be academically sound and be consistent with the missions of Rutgers and with its highest standards. But in the new era we're entering, our goals simply cannot neglect or ignore efficiency, strategy, and revenue. Let's go back to the subject of our students. Right now, our undergraduate student body is overwhelmingly from New Jersey, over 90%. And while it's appropriate for the state university to serve mainly men and women from here at home, indeed, we're educating more New Jersey students than ever this year, we have much to gain by recruiting, admitting, and educating students from other states and other countries. 
Their presence, and especially the geographic and cultural diversities they bring, will enrich everyone's education. Because their tuition is higher, these students will also improve our budget. Through planning and hard work and growing recruitment efforts around the country and in strategic locations abroad, our first-year class in New Brunswick this fall includes more than 10% increases of both out-of-state and international students. This is a good start on a goal that will enable Rutgers to prepare all our students better and will improve the university's financial self-sufficiency. The makeup of our student body is also changing in response to demands and expectations. On all our campuses, business education remains very popular, as do engineering and pharmacy in New Brunswick. Where student demand is growing, and where the anticipated personal income of our graduates is also high, we will increasingly see differentially higher tuition rates. In this way, Rutgers will meet the needs of students while helping the university's bottom line. The student diversity we seek also includes men and women whose situations in life are different from those of most college students. Just as in the case of out-of-state and international students, the presence of these non-traditional students improves everyone's education because they bring tremendous motivation, perspective, and experience to our campuses. They also add to the financial resources that are available to all of our programs. For decades, Rutgers has welcomed and educated thousands of non-traditional students. But today, more of these men and women than ever want and need our programs. People who are unemployed or underemployed in this economy. Those who might not have formerly required a baccalaureate degree for their careers, but now do. Those whose family situations demand that they become breadwinners. Those returning from military service of whom we have proudly welcomed more than 500 this year, and those who are living longer than ever after retirement. I have asked a group of faculty and deans to recommend, develop recommendations providing more Rutgers options for non-traditional students. Some of these options would be available on our campuses. Others would involve completing Rutgers degrees at off-campus sites. Still others would involve a mix of on-campus on and online experiences. These new educational programs will not only enable us to reach students whom we would otherwise never see, but will also be sources of revenue. Executive and continuing education, new master's degrees, summer and winter sessions, and off-campus and online teaching are both efficient and profitable. Over the past year, the university's revenue from off-campus degree completion programs increased by 14%, while income from online courses doubled. The Mason Gross School of the Arts has quickly gone from having almost no online courses to becoming a leader among all schools at Rutgers, and there is plenty of room for more online courses in every unit. The School of Arts and Sciences is inviting faculty to compete for seed grants to support entrepreneurial activities such as new master's programs, web-based teaching, and lifelong learning. A common feature of my meetings with faculty and staff last year was the appetite they expressed for undertaking new revenue-generating programs and the acceptance of responsibility for obtaining many of the resources upon which their academic programs depend. The faculty also told me that Rutgers has much to gain by increasing our global reach, and so we are investing there too. 
A committee is working to improve and expand our international service learning program, and I have asked a group of Rutgers faculty with experience in China to recommend strategic choices for advancing our programs and opportunities there. We already enjoy partnerships in China through many of our schools, but we can do much more to increase significantly the number of students coming here from China, to send more Rutgers students there for a semester or longer, and to build new research collaborations for mutual benefit. The opportunities are vast, and they too can bring new revenue for Rutgers. Attaining the educational goals I have been describing and garnering the revenues they bring will require continuing investments in people, programs, technology, and facilities. Even at a time when our budgets are severely constrained, we simply must make commitments for the future. The new faculty and staff we have appointed this year and those whom we seek to appoint for next year are in both instances less numerous than we would like, but are completely essential to progress at Rutgers. Where will our growing numbers of on-campus students live if not in the new residence halls at Bush and Livingston? Newark and Camden need new residence halls too, and we're trying to develop business plans that will make them feasible. Where will our faculty do their research if not in new buildings like those for proteomics going up today, nutrition tomorrow, and nursing in Camden before long? How can Rutgers maintain its historic excellence in the core field of chemistry without undertaking wholesale renovations to Wright-Riemann? How can we meet the demand for 21st century engineers without adding to a facility that still mostly resembles the School of Engineering as it was built in the 1960s? Hard as it may be to believe when our budgets are so constrained, these goals for Rutgers are achievable but the responsibility rests with us to assure the university's future in a demanding environment. The greatest public research universities like the other ones that were listed in that Wall Street Journal article last week are making the transition I'm describing, and Rutgers can do it too. A couple of weeks from now, on October 13th, Rutgers will kick off the public phase of a fundraising campaign with a goal of $1 billion. Some have said we should not be starting a campaign in such a bleak economic environment. I say we must. We cannot wait for the state to provide a windfall, nor can we delay while the economy recovers. We need to give our students more scholarship support. We need to keep attracting world-class scholars to our faculty. We need facilities that match our ambitions. We need to continue our outreach as the state university. So we will confidently launch a campaign that asks individuals, corporations, and foundations to embrace the future that we and they envision for Rutgers. We feel sure they will respond to our appeal because the Rutgers Foundation, deans, and development directors have spent years of quiet preparation for this moment. We know it, too, because we've seen the generosity of our donors again and again through the years. Richard Goldman, class of 1972, made the gift that launched the signature courses in the School of Arts and Sciences. Jack Byrne, class of 1954, made the gift that secured the future of the first-year seminars that bear his name. Steve Colson, a friend of the university, has given three large donations to the Rutgers Future Scholars Program, 
which is providing opportunities for boys and girls in our hometowns of Camden, Newark, New Brunswick, and Piscataway to prepare for college. Beverly Johnson, class of 1971, established a scholarship to help students in Roselle Park, where she grew up, to attend Rutgers. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has given $10 million to launch the Institute for Food, Nutrition, and Health. The name of our campaign is Our Rutgers, Our Future, and it will succeed. That same phrase, Our Rutgers, Our Future, also expresses what I've been discussing with you this afternoon. Here and now is an institution called Rutgers about which we care deeply and which we must protect and nurture. We must consciously seize the future or be overwhelmed by it. The choice is easy, but the decisions required to face the future are not. Rutgers has mighty challenges ahead, but also a wealth of talent and commitment among our faculty, staff, students, alumni, donors, board members, parents, and friends. I deeply appreciate the goodwill and extraordinary efforts that are being exerted across our university by all in a tough time to maintain quality and achieve our goals. Because of these efforts, we will meet the demands I have described today, just as we and those who came before us have done for nearly 250 years. These goals for Rutgers are achievable. The students and their parents who are paying tuition believe it. The federal agencies supporting our research believe it. The football fans who have bought tickets for tomorrow's game believe it. The donors who are contributing to our $1 billion campaign believe it, and so must we. Rutgers has never had it easy, never benefited from a whole lot of entitlement. But our accomplishments are very real. Indeed, they are remarkable for our students, for the state, and for the world. For that record of achievement, and for the next installments to come for which you are responsible, I thank you. This is our Rutgers and our future. been listening to a rebroadcast of the Rutgers President's Annual Address, delivered September 24th by Rutgers President Richard McCormick. A question and answer session followed the address, in which any member of the Rutgers community could ask Dr. McCormick a question. Thank you, President McCormick. Uh, We we now come to the uh, questions part of the uh, agenda, if you want. Um, I have a few ground rules, unlike other normal, usual Senate uh, meetings. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the microphones are open to senators and non-senators alike. Um, the president has agreed to stay and answer all and every question. Um, I myself only have uh, uh, the requirement that I'm out of here by 6.40 that I teach. Uh, so um, in, in order to keep it down, uh, we ask that you keep your questions to one minute there is a big clock that's going to be start ticking over there. Um, if you have a two-pronged question, please ask both of them. 
There should be no follow-up questions. For that, I am asking that you ask your question and then take your seat. And please, if somebody has asked the same question, you don't need to show your support by asking it again. So thank you very much, and let's get started. Norman, I have an important and, and very please, positive. And please, hold, yeah. please identify yourself. Norman Markowitz, faculty senator. I have an important and very positive announcement that has nothing to do with the president's speech. Professor Jan Dutta will be retiring after 49 years as a member of the economics department. Professor Jan Dutta will be celebrating his 85th birthday next Friday. Professor Jan Dutta is the author of many books, many articles. He has traveled and given presentations in many nations, most recently Sweden. If any member of our faculty really does represent what our business management, also known as our administration, uses to advertise the university, Jersey Roots, Global Reach, it is Professor Jan Dutta. I would ask him to stand up. Stand up, and I would ask us to give him a standing ovation. <laughs> now, the unpleasant stuff begins. <laughs> Norman, come back. <laughs> Hi, President McCormick. My name is uh, Ernesto Guevara, and I'm here on behalf of every student who has ever um, been disenfranchised, every student who has not been able to attend school because of financial reasons, because of um, this creation of an underclass of citizens, because of, this cre because of um, the, the mere uh, ignoring of the university of, of, of these students' rights and, and, and of its goal, as you stated many times in your, in your speech, to educate, Cause, because education is a privilege, I mean, is, is, a, is a right, not a privilege. Um, so my question, as you heard many other people ask, um, is will you take a moral stance, not, not beating around the bush or, or um, any politicking, will you take a moral stance right here, right now, in front of all these people on the record? in support of your constituents and your students and all of those people who are not able to attend school? Will you take a moral stance to support um, a Rutgers in-state tuition here at, at this university uh, in Newark, in Camden, at Rutgers University as a whole? Will you take a moral stance right now? <laughs> not later, right now. Rutgers shares the goal of assuring that all who can benefit from a Rutgers degree have the opportunity to do so. Assuring that they can in today's environment is, is complicated and requires a multi-pronged strategy of the kind I described today. I believe you're specifically referring to undocumented students who may not currently have access to a Rutgers education at, uh, at in-state tuition rates. We, we would like to respond to their problems, but it's not within our power um, nor within the purview of any moral commitment I might make. And I don't want to mislead you by trying to make one. I'm still answering your question uh, to solve that problem. It will, have to be it will have to be solved in the context 
of uh, the government of New Jersey and of the nation. The DREAM Act has been advanced by President Obama. We support its goals. We'll join with you in advancing its passage, just as we will related legislation in New Jersey. But, but it would be misleading for you and everyone here for me to make a spurious moral commitment suggesting that Rutgers can achieve alone what it can't. We share the goals. Now we've got to work to achieve them. I was asking, will you as a person take a moral stance? Not, not, not the university. I'm, you as a person yeah, take I'm, a, I'm, a moral I'm, stance right here, right now, yeah, to support your constituents. Be, it must be, obvious to, must be obvious to you that I'm standing here as the president of Rutgers, <laughs> whose moral commitment to diversity and opportunity over 247 years cannot be doubted by anyone in the room. As president of the university, yes I share no. it and I advance it. Yes or no? I've done, Answer. I've, done my best to answer your question. Yes, question and answer it, please. Let's please, work please together. Let somebody else. Please let somebody else speak. President McCormick, I am Mark Bittner. I am an undergraduate senator representing the Cook campus. Um, I know in your speech that you talked about that we have to cut staff and faculty and increase enrollment. What uh, I'm seeing instances in which students are coming into class 15, 20, 30 minutes late every day trying to get to class because the buses are too packed, there's not enough space available for people to get from point A to point B at this university. And overall, wouldn't you agree that that is partially lowering the quality of the education we receive here? Also in your speech, you mentioned how the university and everybody needs to make a couple of sacrifices. However, is it really worth sacrificing the quality of the degrees for the current undergraduates at Rutgers University? Our, our, campus, our campus in New Brunswick depends critically upon our buses. Because of the dispersion of Bush, Livingston, College Avenue, Cook, and Douglas, we run the largest bus system of any university in the country, and it's the second largest bus system in New Jersey. We invest millions of dollars in it each year, and our expenditures for it are inevitably rising. We're trying to concentrate the bus resources on the periods of each week when they're most in demand, the middle of the day on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, above all. And, and I know that despite that, due to traffic and due to the failure to have enough buses, even with those large commitments, not every student always gets to class on time. It's a critically important problem. Last year when I gathered uh, uh, with RUSA, uh, the Rutgers University Student Assembly in the evening, that was probably the single most important issue raised. We've made some investments in response to the concerns we learned about then then more need to be made, but they're competing with other investments. For example, when the bus finally arrives, um, the classes that the students want are available this year because the School of Arts and Sciences and other units throughout Rutgers, but especially the School of Arts and Sciences, made fresh commitments to add the sections and courses that were required. We're, we're balancing goals here, and we haven't, sufficient, we haven't a sufficient number of dollars to achieve them all completely. Believe me, I know the buses are a problem. I was asking more along the lines of the overall quality. I know you said no follow-ups. I apologize. But I was, the quality the, of? The quality of the education as a result of the lack of more faculty, the lack of staff, and the increase in students. I know you said we don't want to enroll our way out of it, but I feel that that's what's happening. And one of the consequences is the quality of the education, not just due to the buses, but overall the quality of the education at Rutgers, which I love this university. I'm very happy I'm a student here. It's a great place to be but the quality overall is lowering as a result yeah. of the cuts in the faculty and the increase in students and the increase in the bus. And ability Every to get to problem classes. you've mentioned, and a whole bunch you didn't, which I mentioned in my remarks, is true, but I, I doubt profoundly 
that the overall quality of a Rutgers education is going down. Surely there are thousands of people endeavoring to make sure that it does not. Okay. Starting you. with your faculty. Thank you. Hey, Mr. President, uh, Charles Craddeville. I um, thank you for your remarks and an opportunity to address you. Um, and I share your concern about the, the shrinking university budget. Um, I feel that there was uh, perhaps a, a golden opportunity, though, that the university uh, passed up um, over the summer. Uh, uh, of course, I'm speaking about the uh, proposal to uh, basically have a monopoly on uh, growing the medical marijuana for the New Jersey State program. Um, <laughs> it's, it's actually not very funny because there are sick people who could use it. And, and, and the, the important thing here is that it would actually be a, a cost-saving or revenue-generating measure for the university. And, and my question to you, I suppose, is, is would you be willing to respond to the governor who has said that the idea was brought to him by Rutgers originally? Um, my, my question to you is, if that is the case, does that not demonstrate a lack of uh, foresight and, and thoroughness in the, on the part of the administration in bringing forth an idea to the governor that uh, the administration would themselves have to renege on uh, a matter of weeks later. Um, please answer okay, that. Let me, uh, let me give it a try. Um, the, the idea never progressed far enough for us to know whether it would in fact produce revenue for Rutgers. So let me set that aside. But even it w if it would not have, it, it was and remains something that Rutgers would have liked to have done. And why, why is that? Because it's a, it's a textbook example of a case where there's a, there's a social and human need, in this case people in pain, for some of whom marijuana could be uh, ameliorative, uh, a, a university with expertise in science and agriculture, and, and an opportunity fully to fulfill our role as the State University of New Jersey. So it was an alluring idea, and we would like to have done it. But among, upon careful inspection, it became clear that the Federal uh, Controlled Substances Act would not permit us. Why is that? Rutgers receives, as I bragged about in my remarks, hundreds of millions of dollars in federal support for our research and, above all, for our students. Every time we apply for one of those dollars, we have to sign a document that says Rutgers is not in violation of any federal statutes. If we had uh, gone ahead uh, under the terms uh, proposed with the medical marijuana proposal, a goal I support and a mission that is consistent with Rutgers's, uh, we would either have, have had to lie on those forms or not check the yes box, and in either case, we would have jeopardized hundreds of millions of dollars in funding for Rutgers. Uh, so out of uh, our obvious respect for that federal legislation, we were reluctantly unable to do it. Pardon me, but the... Uh, hey, let me, I, I'm, I'm, I've been lenient with follow-up questions, but this is getting to every single person. So you ask your question, please wait until everybody else asks their own. Thank you. Um, Richard Gomez, Vice President of the uh, part-time uh, lecture chapter and also a PTL uh, senator representing uh, PTLs. Um, my question to you, Dr. McCormick, is in regards of the winter and summer negotiations that has been staggering for months. Uh, the administration keeps giving us the excuse, over-excuse on this contract, and we're just waiting. We just hear excuses over excuses that, you know, non-credited, uh, uh, non-matriculated students could be matriculated in the summer, so it's different, but they don't use non-matriculated money to pay the tuition fees. The money is the same, the classes are the same, 
everything is the same, why we cannot have a contract. We're not, we are teaching the same things during our regular year in the summer. We would like a contract. And I'm speaking on behalf of TAs, GAs, full-timers, part-timers. In all instruction, teaching does not differ from season to season. We need to stop the union busting. Okay. <clears throat> and, and, there, and there will be a contract. Rutgers already has contracts with 12 faculty and staff unions, and we've had, uh, we've had relationships with unions for four decades now. This is, a, this is a new union. It's the first time this contract has been negotiated, and uh, there are some issues that have to be settled at the table, not in, not in this venue. And they will, it will get done. They will be settled, and it will get done, just as the contracts have been consummated with all of Rutgers' other, other proud faculty and staff unions. Hi, my name is Steven Budinsky, and I am a student in the School of Arts and Science and Sciences Honors Program. And my question to you is, I, would let, I just want to say that when I had my decision as a high school senior a year and a half ago of where to go to school, I was faced due to financial reasons between Rutgers and the College of New Jersey. And because of family, you know, my mom and my aunt both went to Rutgers, I also chose to come to Rutgers. But I had a lot of uh, students and teachers at my high school who thought the TCNJ was a better option. And since I've came here, I've came to find that Rutgers was definitely a great decision for me, and I'm really glad that I came here. And I feel like the honors Thank program you. especially has been amazing. But you talked a lot in your speech about ways to improve the university, but you didn't really talk as much about ways to encourage high-achieving students to come here. And you talked a lot about the great things that the university <clears throat> is happening, but I want to know what are you thinking is to do the best way to make sure that the full state, the entire state of New Jersey knows what is going on here and all the great things that we are accomplishing. That's a, that, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Uh, one of the challenges... That's a wonderful question. One of the challenges that Rutgers has always faced uh, is telling our story, starting with the people of New Jersey. It's been a fact of life in our state forever that uh, many boys and girls want to go away to school, like want to cross a river to get away from mom and dad or whatever their high-minded motivations may be. And we have to redouble and triple our efforts with prospective students like you once were, with parents and with high school guidance counselors to point out extraordinary opportunities at Rutgers, including our ever-growing honors program. There are, uh, with regard to the highest achieving students in particular, there are plans afoot to grow honors education significantly and to, to uh, uh, market it well to those who could, uh, who, who, like yourself, who would want to know about it. It's a very, very important goal for Rutgers. Thank you. I hope you make that a goal. It is a goal. I'm uh, Jim Tepper. I'm a professor, too, in the Neuroscience Center in Newark. Uh, President McCormick, my question concerns uh, your email of July 22nd that was sent out to the university community and subsequent follow-ups, including um, articles in the Star-Ledger. Uh, the general question has to do with the lack of uh, fiscal and budgetary transparency that your administration has had and been accused of, I think rightfully so, for years, and specifically your claim that the uh, reason for the, but for the uh, freeze on, on the raises, the merit increases and other raises, uh, has to do with state uh, funding. We have a budget this year of approximately $2 billion. According to the numbers you gave earlier, uh, the state cuts are considerably less than 
of the entire Rutgers budget. Not only that, the amount of money that it would take to pay the raises is only $30 million, which is less than 1.5% of the total Rutgers budget. So how in good conscience can you say that the reason that you cannot pay the raises that we have been waiting for, not for one, but for two years, is due to cuts in state funding? That's, that's an important pair of questions. Let me answer them both. First of all, with respect to the provision of information, uh, there have been dozens, perhaps hundreds, of requests for it, and we've responded. The university administration has responded with thousands of pages of info about our budgets, about the proposed uh, budget reductions in the schools and colleges, about the salaries and other forms of compensation we're paying to Rutgers employees. And if there's additional information you feel you haven't gotten, please please ask for it. With respect to your second question about why we can't pay the raises, um, I, guess, I guess we could, um, but the choices, uh, the choices would be very, very bad and very, and very painful. Most, most, um, most directly, it would mean laying off increased numbers of, of staff. Rutgers will already and is already experiencing some staff layoffs, but they'll be greatly increased. $31 million, I think that's the number you used. It sounds accurate to me. $31 million employs a lot of people. Moreover, going forward, as I said in my prepared remarks, the university depends upon the kind of investments we're making in new faculty and staff and facilities and technology and in programs. We could not do any of that stuff and pay, and pay all the raises right now, I guess, but it wouldn't be a very good choice for the university. And that's what I meant when I said that we have, we collectively have a responsibility for tough choices for the years ahead for Rutgers, and some of those choices will not be easy or popular, and I freely acknowledge this is one of them. Hello, Mr. President. Uh, my name is Stephen Lee. I'm a senator of the School of um, Environmental and Biological Sciences. Uh, my question comes about enrollment and, and admissions. Um, I am glad that you finally acknowledged that we cannot enroll our way out of the budget problems of today. Um, with increasing enrollments for the past two years, we have seen the increase of numbers of students at this university by 2,000. If we keep on going on that trend, we will see a scarcity of resources such as housing and transportation, which obviously Rutgers would have to re respond by investing in more projects, which would increase costs to this university. So my question to you is that in the near future, will Rutgers finally see a cap on enrollment and not see the current trend of increasing enrollments by 1,000 students per year? Okay, that's a, that's a smart question, and it's directly related to some of the things I talked about. We're not looking for a hard cap on enrollment, although we do recognize, as I've said, we can enroll our way out of this crisis. It, it's, a, it's a strategic answer of the kind I gave in several other categories. We're looking to target enrollment increases with respect to certain disciplines and certain categories of students, and that probably means that other categories and other disciplines will decline in their enrollment. We're not looking for an ever-expanding student body of 2,000 a year. that We haven't the ability to accommodate it. On the other hand, we are taking some really important steps to accommodate the growth of enrollment, perhaps none more important than the construction of 
uh, 500 new beds in our new residence halls on the Bush campus and 1,500 on the Livingston campus so that the, the uh, overcrowding in the dorms that we've experienced for the last several years will not, will not be continued. We also know that we're going to have to invest more in our bus transportation system. But I think, uh, you know, a hard cap um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense when we have opportunities, including opportunities, to bring in students who will not only further diversify Rutgers but further improve its bottom line. And that's, that's a key strategy going forward. All right. Thank you very much. President McCormick, my name is Nancy Bergen, and I'm a graduate of Rutgers College, class of 1976. I'm here with the um, Rutgers Parents Association. Welcome. And Thank you. And the question that I have, I think, is a diversity issue. I'm currently enrolled in a school nurse certification program. And as such, I'm now being exposed to students who have special needs and disabled students. And what I would like to know is probably related to inclusive education and how is Rutgers going to help these students to succeed? What can it do and what will it do? Yeah. Uh, students with uh, special needs, including disabled students, are a high priority for us. I think you heard in the enumeration of some of the uh, responsibilities that the Senate is undertaking this year, that is that is high on that is high on their on their agenda. Um, it, uh, it it's consistent with all of our goals, and I've said it before today. Those who can benefit from a Rutgers education should have the opportunity to do so, including the provision of services for those who are not just like everybody else, whether they're veterans who've served in Iraq and Afghanistan or older students or students with, with disabilities. It's a high priority to do, and we will, but once again, it, it is a matter of making uh, investments with scarce resources at a time when, as the questions to this point have indicated, there's a, a myriad of demands upon those square, scarce resources. That's on the list. We'll, we'll do all we can. Thank you. Hello, President McCormick. My name is Josh David. I'm a student center from the School of Arts and Sciences, New Brunswick. Um, I'm very proud of the education I've received thus far at Rutgers, and I'm proud of all the accomplishments of the faculty and students here. One thing that has been bothering me, though, is um, uh, certain campus aesthetics and facilities, um, <laughs> such as you know seeing patches of dirt on you know Voorhees Mall, which we should be proud of, and you know I am. I'm def very grateful for, you know, renovating the steps over on College Ave and, you know, projects for planting flowers. But I think an important thing we should be focusing on, um, especially for visitors coming to Rutgers, is our campus aesthetics. Um, and I feel like, you know, I definitely appreciate the work that facilities has been doing. Um, and I, you know, I have seen that a lot with the flowers and the stairs and all that. But I think there's so much more to be done. And I know in this economic climate, it is very difficult to do that. I recognize that. But I think in order to attract the brightest students uh, throughout New Jersey, and especially the out-of-state students who have many more options, I think that's something that we should be focusing on. And I want to know what steps you'd be willing to take um, in that regard. I think you're absolutely right. Um, some people say that, uh, you know, beautifying the campus is something you take care of after all the other needs have been met. The buses are... Uh, sufficiently numerous and disabled students are cared for and the scholarship support for but I, I don't I don't agree I think it's a very high uh, priority for the university in part for the reason you said it affects whom we attract the decision that students and faculty make about whether to come here you know for right or wrong depends in large part on how we look and the uh, the shabbiness 
of some parts of our campus is, uh, is a shame, and it is a deterrent to our being the great university we can. So over the past few years, we've made big-time investments in the beautification of the Livingston campus. Rutgers' is formerly forgotten Livingston campus now looks really spiffy, and it's going to look even better in the, in the years ahead. Um, over the past summer, we replaced a, a god-awful, oh, that's, that's an academic expression, uh, <laughs> uh, a bus stop in front of the uh, barn out here, and uh, another one will be replaced uh, by the grease trucks, uh, and still another one on George Street in the, in the ne- within the next 12 months. Those are just some examples of investments we're making in the beauty of the place. I don't think it's superficial or spurious or irrelevant to our academic goals. I think it's just as important as you do. Okay, thank you. Live from the Livingston campus of Rutgers University. This is RLC WVPH in Piscataway. 90.3 The Core. Independent community radio from Piscataway High School and Rutgers University. Learn more at thecore.fm. Many voices. One station. This is 90.3 The Core. This is 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Rutgers President's Annual Address, delivered on Friday, September 24th, by Rutgers President Dr. Richard McCormick. Hello, President McCormick. My name is Andrew Yu, and I am currently a student at Rutgers School of Law, Newark, and the University Senator. I have a question that um, I was asked by my constituents to ask you why the flag why the United States flag was not lowered for the death of Senator Byrd and why the current policy only states that the flag should be lowered for the death of university-related personnel, current or retired, unless directed by the governor of New Jersey. Okay. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, let, me, let me look into what the policy is. It, it, it sounds like you have it right, though, that the, the, uh, the policy is that the flag in front of Old Queens is lowered for uh, those related to the university, and it's lowered... God, it seems it's lowered more than half the time. Um, but I will look. Uh, I will look into that. Please be aware, however, that if we extended it beyond the university community, for example, to United States senators, and then to United States congressmen, and then to state legislators, we, we you see where I'm going. We we would have a pretty complicated uh, dis- set of decisions on our hand about whom to lower the the f- flag for. So I'll look into it, but but do think about that. All right. Thank you. Thanks. My name is Christopher Benetti, and I represent uh, uh, Newark um, students in the executive committee. Um, my question is two parts, but they're, they're very related. Um, how specifically will um, Newark be affected by the changes? Because uh, in your speech, you talked mostly about Camden, New Brunswick, which is fine. But I just wanted to get that highlighted. And the second part is... How specifically will the social sciences be affected in Newark or in general? Because I'm a political science person, and I'm a little worried that we're going to be kind of the redheaded stepchild here, and uh, the natural sciences are going to get all the cash, and we're going to be like, see you later, political science. So those are my only two parts. Okay. Um, First of all, let me say, first, I, I, I did not intend to appear to slight the Newark campus. I don't think I did, but if I did, I apologize to all my colleagues from Newark. Um, Newark, uh, the Newark campus of Rutgers with its 12,000 students, another record, a campus that for 14 straight years has been the most diverse of any university in America, a campus that's 
providing a pace setting achievements in responsiveness to urban challenges is very, very much a part of Rutgers. And every important goal I expressed, whether concerning research or the composition of our student body or the quality of our education, equally and completely applies to the to the newer campus. Now, since you speak for the social sciences, I, I come from the field of history, so that's I consider that a legitimate question. Um, <laughs> let me let me say it is a, it is a challenge with resources so scarce. Certain disciplines in the sciences and technology and engineering have more readily available ways of generating revenue. There's a lot more federal research support available in uh, chemistry than there is in political science. So it's the responsibility of the university administration and of deans and others to make sure that we keep ourselves we keep ourselves balanced and that we remain just as great in political science and history and English and comparative literature as we are in chemistry and genetics. And Rutgers will do that. Good afternoon. I'm, my name is Mike Suleiman, and aside from being really underdressed, I'm a senior here at SAS. Uh, my question regards transfers. I transferred here last year, and even though it's not the intention, certainly of you or the university, that it seems like transfer students are really um, left out left out to dry sometimes. We're one of the last pick classes. Um, even though there's a transfer center on the New Brunswick campus, a lot of uh, students um, aren't really educated enough in how Rutgers works. The transition, I feel like, for transfers is not as great as it is for freshmen who started here. And certainly it's a growing population with community colleges and four-year universities, and I feel like more needs to be done, or what was the university going to do to help transfers get a better transition to this uh, school, as well as make them feel more comfortable at Rutgers. Right. This is an important problem. Um, much, of the, uh, much of the enrollment increase about which we've been speaking today is of transfer students, the great majority of them coming from other colleges in, in, in New Jersey, including our county and community colleges. Um, some of them begin the year in, in the fall when most new students start, others in, others in January at the time of the second semester. And especially for those, but including those who begin in the fall, the transition from wherever they have, may have been to Rutgers is not, is not, is not that easy. So in, uh, in the past few years, and we've got more to, more to go, we're doing everything we can to make sure that transfer students have what they need, that, that additional sections, for example, are opened up. When we see the, the profile of the transfer student population, which may become visible later than the regular population, make sure that appropriate sections of courses are opened up for them, to make sure that advising is available because they've got courses they completed at another uh, institution, and the question of which of those count toward the Rutgers degree, both the gen ed requirements and the major. Each, each individual transfer student needs his or her own answer to those questions. They deserve their own answer to the questions, but it is, uh, is labor-intensive, and we're, we're trying to meet the needs. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hello, President McCormick. Uh, my name is Nicholas Kubian. I'm an uh, alumni from Rutgers College, and uh, I wanted to thank you today sincerely for uh, taking up the cause of, of the over 10% of the New Jersey population that is food insecure uh, through your Rutgers Against Hunger initiative particularly, as well as the many good works that, that Leslie and the other members have been helping with. And what I wanted to ask you specifically was about the Supervan project, which uh, for anybody who's not familiar with it is a proposition for a, a greaseless truck on campus, which would be healthy fast food, 100% of the profit would go directly to feed the hungry and homeless of New Jersey and New Brunswick through Rutgers Against Hunger. And my thought was, uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about if you think that that is a project that the Rutgers community should embrace and support, as well as if you think the idea of social enterprise specifically is something that has a, a home here at Rutgers. Well, it absolutely has a home here at Rutgers, and, and indeed many of our students are involved in social enterprises of various kinds 
find, founding uh, microfinance organizations and, and reaching out in a myriad of ways to those who were food insecure in New Jersey. That's what Rutgers Against Hunger has been doing for two years now. On the one hand, it's a glorified food drive and a mighty successful one putting food into food banks across our state. On the other hand, it's another example of what a state university exactly should be doing, bringing our expertise in fields like nutrition and food science to the people who need them. I applaud, I applaud wholeheartedly the increased involvement of Rutgers students in Rutgers Against Hunger this year, and the initiative that you've described is, is very, very important and has my, my wholehearted endorsement. Thank you very much, sir. Dear President McCormick, my son chose Rutgers over UC Berkeley, Stanford University, MIT, and Harvard University. Smart kid. <clears throat> because Rutgers has a glorious history, Rutgers has six alumni, faculties, scholars, win Nobel Prize. And my son, <coughs> believe that he can win the Nobel Prize. He can win Nobel Prize because he has been top of almost New Jersey competition, nationwide competitions. So if my son got sufficient education, best education like Rutgers University, he will get a Nobel Prize. Now, as a parent, I prepare $5 million cash in the bank to support him for this gold. However, $5 million is nothing to the resource that Rutgers University needed. I would ask President McCormick, because Bill Gates and the Warren Buffet announced publicly that he's going to donate half of his wealth to the charities. How is the Rutgers University going to get share of it? Because I'm not born in this country. So for some reason, I don't believe them. However, if they could make the published announcement we should try to believe them and then make them to donate here. The second question is that Steve Jobs, who was chosen CEO of the decade in the world, he made a speech in the Stanford commencement in 2005 saying that he never got a college degree. As a matter of fact, he all this through the, co the courses in the universities. I do understand that Rutgers do not have uh, the resource to make sure that it's open to general public to sit in to audit the courses, including the parents. So I do recommend uh, President McCormick to talk to Steve Jobs, the Apple computer, to find a program to Rutgers University so that all the general public can audit the courses. 
and I believe Steve Jobs will understand that. Maybe we also invite him to make a speech in our commencement one year. Mr. Chang, thank you very much. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm going to answer just one of your questions since you, you covered a lot of ground. The, uh, the fundraising campaign that we're launching publicly on October 13th is reaching out to foundations and corporations as well as to individuals and, and alumni. Among them are the foundations headed by the, the distinguished wealthy men that you've mentioned, uh, certainly including the Gates Foundation, which is the instrument through which Bill and Melinda Gates will be giving away half of their fortune per the, uh, the declaration that he and Warren Buffett made last week. So that's very much on our screen. We've got a number of proposals on the desk of officers at the Gates Foundation right now. I assure you we're trying to get our share of those funds. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Beata Pazden. Um, I'm a junior at SAS. I'm sorry, I'm reading from a piece of paper. I'm not really good at public speaking. That's but. okay. I read my speech, too. <laughs> I had a recent personal experience of sexual harassment by a staff member of the university, specifically a TA. As a result of the improper way that the situation was handled, neglected, and not investigated, I have concerns with the way that sexual harassment policies are enforced by the university. President Cormick. How would you propose that preventive actions matters are better incorporated into university's policy? And how can the university improve the procedure on properly handling such an issue? Okay, Rutgers, Rutgers takes the problem of sexual harassment very seriously. It's one of a handful of subjects on which I send a special communication to everyone in the university community every year, and I did so within the last, within the last couple of weeks. We have, a, we have a group of staff members who are available to faculty and staff and students who believe they have spotted a problem to support those who may be victims of sexual harassment and to make sure that uh, they're, they're taken care of and that, and that justice is done. If you know, uh, or the person who wrote that knows of specific instances in which the policy is breaking down, or particularly if, if you're aware of a victim who has not been, uh, been, been helped, please, please share with me uh, as confidentially as you wish and any information so that we can act on it. And when, can I, when would I be able to do something like that? Excuse me? When would I be able to? Well, if you, if, 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 if you would have a quick word with me after this event, or you would, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, my email address is... My initials, RLM, at rutgers.edu. Okay, thank you. And that only goes to me, so, okay, thank you. Thank you. Of course, now everybody knows it, but. <laughs> You've been listening to a rebroadcast of the Rutgers President's Annual Address, delivered September 24th by Rutgers President Richard McCormick. Um, thank you for permitting me to speak. I promise to do my best to obey the rule of one minute, maybe plus one standard deviation. <laughs> <laughs> my first question, well, both questions refer to retirees and the universities. Oh, I'm sorry, thank you. I'm Shanti Thangri, Professor Emeritus Economics, former chair of the governance committee of this body and and many other bodies I act, played an active role. It's wonderful to see you all. See, longevity is really very useful. Uh, the 
Many of you may be thinking of joining me and Professor Dutta as retirees. And my questions are two. One, <clears throat> given the shortages of finance and everything else, and the availability of some highly talented faculty who are retired and I had the privilege to know in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, is the university doing anything actively to pursue the use of this talent, not to replace people who are teaching, but to do innovative things which may still help in its educational mission of excellence. Number two, like everybody else, we are probably going to be subject to more and more erosion of benefits, whether through medical insurance or many other things. We, we take these for granted that we have these, especially if you worked here for 25 years, but that may not be true. Is the university, does it have a mechanism now, or would it consider putting in place a mechanism where retirees could come together and pursue their interests collectively through the university's facilities and talent? I, I, I appreciate the question deeply. Uh, my, my father spent 24 years as a Rutgers retiree, and my mother is still playing that role, so I get it. I also know that Rutgers has uh, struggled over the years to uh, stay in communication with its retirees, to organize them, and to offer them all that they need and want from their, from their university. If you have specific suggestions for doing that, I'd, I'd welcome them. We, this is an area where we really need a breakthrough. There are now thousands of men and women like you who are retired from Rutgers and who love this place but who still have a lot to contribute. And if we could work together to mobilize them, uh, it would benefit the entire university. Thank you. Good afternoon, uh, President McCormick. My name is Mark Guzman, and this is my final year at Rutgers University, biological science major. Also, I have six years of military service, and I'm currently still enlisted. Now, to fully understand my question, it is dependent of me making you aware of a case of sexual harassment made by a staff member against one of his students. Now, his inappropriate behavior, being fearful of reported, he made false allegations against a female victim. A disciplinary conference was held with regard to these false allegations, and despite his clear motive against this victim, his testimony was taken into account, and the victim's evidence and testimonies were ignored and rejected. A final sanction against the victim was a recommendation of expulsion. So this unfair justice is clearly psychologically damaging and stressful for any student. So my question to you, Mr. McCormick, is what procedures or policy changes can be incorporated with, in particular, how judicial affairs handle similar situations so that this does not happen to any member of the Rutgers community ever again? And also, I would, it would be greatly appreciated if, if you could grant me the opportunity to meet with you to discuss this topic in more depth at a later time. Okay, same answer I gave to the uh, other similar question. Um, not surprisingly, I don't know anything about this individual case, nor should I. Um, but the matter of university policies is of enormous interest to all of us. If you will uh, speak with me confidentially or email me uh, following the address, I will point you in a direction to get the answers you want. Okay, thank you. Hi, President McCormick. My name is Gwen Prouse. I'm a senior here at the School of Arts and Sciences. Um, I've, benefited, I've benefited immensely from being here at this in institution. Uh, however, I do have some concerns 
over um, this increase in enrollment. Uh, while I've been here, it's, all, it's been hard for me and my peers to get um, adequate academic advising. Sometimes it can take several weeks to make an appointment with an advisor. And if we are going to continue to enroll uh, more students here, I'm concerned that if we're enrolling so many, we need to make sure that we retain them here. And that's, um, and there, I have seen students who have fallen through the cracks. So my first question is how are we going to make sure that we retain students and provide them academic, uh, adequate academic advice during their tenure here as students? And then my second question is, uh, like, like, many of my, uh, like many of the seniors here um, and at the university, we're all a little concerned about the future. We're going into one of the weakest job markets um, in American history, and, uh, and, we do, and we do need a lot of support from the university. So my, my second question is, how are we going to, so how are we going to retain the students that are already here, and how are we going to ensure that um, our, the excellence that we achieve as students will um, be something that can transcend beyond our time as students at Okay, two, two really well-phrased questions. Actually, three. The first one touched on the provision of services, including advising for all students. I think I've addressed that already. It's a, it's a high priority, but it is balancing, it is requiring us to balance other other uh, uh, expectations that we have for scarce resources. Retention is a really high goal. In fact, one of the reasons for the enlarged enrollment is our success in retaining students. Um, it, numbers like this move glacially, so the statistics I'm about to quote may not lift you out of your seats, but over the past couple of years, the retention of Rutgers uh, first-year students to become second-year students has gone from 89% to 92%, and we believe it can continue to rise. Those numbers are high, and so you, know, you can't move them by 25% a year or anything like that, but, uh, but we're moving in the right direction. Our graduation rates are correspondingly improving. The last part of your question, uh, was about the economic situation that our the employment situation that our students will face. Um, it, it is serious. Uh, those graduating in 2010, 2011, I guess that would be you, if you get through things okay, uh, uh, is going to be as dire as it has been since uh, well for a long time. Okay, so we're in one of the things in which we're investing more is career services, so that our students, whatever wherever they come from, you're in arts and sciences, have the opportunity to. Uh, meet with uh, those who are recruiting on campus. I bragged about recruiting in the context of the Wall Street Journal article a little later, a little earlier. Uh, we we want to make sure that Rutgers is doing all it can so that our students find good jobs when they graduate. And, and investing more in career services is one way we're doing that. I think, I think the, the word is spreading that Rutgers students, no matter what they've studied, are really good, are really good uh, to employ. At least that's what I took that article to mean. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, President. Um, my name is Graham Lewis, and uh, I'm an SAS. I'm a transfer student. I also served in the military. I was in for four years in the Marines. I, uh, my first question is, I took all online classes because that's the only uh, time I had to, to take classes due to my service. And when I transferred here, I was not given any credit for any of my online classes, even though I received for any of your, What was the adjective there? I just didn't uh, Any of my classes, for uh, online classes. Okay. Rutgers doesn't accept uh, online classes. I was wondering why we don't do that. And my second question is, I've seen a lot of crime uh, on these streets, as, as, like a stabbing in front of this building and the jumping and at the uh, park. And I was wondering what Rutgers is doing to prevent crime. Okay. Here at the um, 
when when anyone transfers into Rutgers, their their transcript, including online and uh, classroom courses, is carefully evaluated, and we give the maximum credit that we can. If you feel that you were not uh, treated fairly in that respect, please speak with one of the advisors in arts and sciences. I think you said you're an arts and sciences student. Uh, yes, I I don't I don't. I know nothing about the particular circumstances, but uh, with increasing numbers of transfer students coming to Rutgers, a core principle is you get credit for Rutgers-relevant courses that you've taken before, wherever that may be. In terms of crime, um, you know, it's a continuing problem. All of our campuses are in, are in urban, urban areas, and while uh, Rutgers police and uh, the police in the towns in which we're located, New Brunswick, Piscataway, Newark, and Camden uh, are, are assiduous at combating crime, at uh, keeping uh, potentially dangerous areas well-lighted, advising students to take care of themselves. Uh, things, things happen. If you're, if you're uh, uh, aware of uh, particularly dangerous areas or you, perhaps based on your military experience, can give us some advice regarding an effort to do even better. I mean, I mean no disrespect for that. I mean, I since you've obviously spotted something, it's on your mind, you may, have, you may have some ideas that can help. Thank you. All right, thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Ayman Nayar. I'm a student senator representing the School of Business from Rutgers Camden. Uh, my question, most of my questions have already been answered regarding the budget and enrollment and all of that stuff. Uh, my question is actually regarding courses and credits at the different schools uh, within Rutgers. Um, I'm not sure whether you're aware or not, but some credits actually don't transfer over from one campus into the other, and the courses are actually differently evaluated, which is probably why um, the Business School of New Brunswick and Newark will be ranked at a different number, and Camden will perhaps be ranked at a different number. So I suppose my question to you is, um, is that at all a priority to try and rank the courses differently? Because students are told that they should probably think a year ahead if they want to have uh, an inter-school um, from, from one campus to the other, uh, if they want to transfer, basic courses are not accepted. Um, what, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, are we all Rutgers or are we Camden, New Brunswick, and Newark? So is, is that at all, at all a priority? Do we want to get the same courses going? Em emphatically, emphatically, we are all Rutgers. But there are historic um, traditions and turf protections that still remain to be eliminated. It's a very high priority to ensure that we do that, especially in an era when increasing numbers of students, whether they live on camp campus or not, are experiencing challenges in their families, in the economy, and need the flexibility to take a course here and a course there and to have it counted for their degrees. The responsibility for deciding what counts toward what degree, of course, rests with the faculty, and it, as it should, by the way. Um, so we are, we are working hard to bring faculties together across the lines of schools and campuses to address that problem. We are, we are emphatically one Rutgers, and the course you take here should count there. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Mariah Nestor. I'm a non-traditional EOF transfer student. I'm actually here on behalf of a group of, a group of students that are concerned with the unethical way in which the university and its transportation department is dealing with their lack of buses. I just really, I know we've talked about this, but I want a response from you about this. Um, specifically, um, instead of fixing the fact that the buses are overcrowded, you're suspending bus drivers for trying to help students get to their classes on time because the buses are overcrowded. We're wedding um, bus drivers? Bus drivers are being suspended for having students crowding onto the bus. Um, that was one of the issues. Instead of adding more buses to the line, um, 
the 11-day notice that LBUS students, um, faculty, and staff were given when their bus was removed, the inability to provide us with the budget and the information we have asked for um, about these transportation decisions when we've met with Director Molnar, um, and also the jokes aimed at young women's fear of walking next to the unlit woods on Avenue E by Director Molnar. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing for the first time several of the points you made, including the first one about the suspension of bus drivers and the last one about playing on women's fears. I don't know about those things. I'll look into them. They're not acceptable. Um, with regard to the other points you make, you've got some, you've got some good ones that Rutgers is experiencing. Um, first of all, we, we know the buses are overcrowded, and contrary to what you said, we are making additional investments in buses at the most crowded times of the day. But again, as in so many subjects we've discussed this afternoon, it's a balancing act. If we spend more on buses, and we are, if we spend more on buses at the most crowded times of the week, uh, middle of the day, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, for sake of argument, it's less that's available on weekends or on Mondays and Fridays. So we, we balance and we try to get it right. With regard to the L bus, we studied that long and hard. Um, it was the least utilized bus of all the routes at Rutgers, and we had to make a hard decision. In order to invest more in the buses at the times I mentioned a moment ago, we, we, had to curtail, we had to curtail that one. The L bus originated before the Route 18, uh, the Lynch Bridge was created a long time ago, and before Route 18 was completed, when, when the old Mettler's Lane, which many of you will remember, was there, and it was almost impossible for large numbers of buses to traverse Met Mettler's Lane across the Lynch Bridge. And, so, so Cedar Lane was used as, a, as the L, what became the L bus route down Cedar Lane, uh, and, and it, it served that area well, but it is by far... Uh, the least utilized of the Rutgers bus routes. There are other, other means and ways to get from Livingston to Bush or College Avenue, wherever you're going. So we made a tough decision to phase out that L bus. You've been listening to a rebroadcast of the Rutgers President's Annual Address, delivered September 24th by Rutgers President Richard McCormick. Hello, President McCormick. My name is John Asprey. I'm a uh, member of the Rutgers University Student Assembly. Um, I came here to uh, talk about tuition hikes and the, uh, the salary freeze for uh, the contract workers at the university. I want to make a brief point. Uh, I actually left the address uh, during, um, after one of the uh, students speaking out about the, the in-state tuition policy uh, was escorted out to check on uh, their rights as they were being detained. Um, and I was actually then barred from entering uh, this, this public answer, question and answer session, uh, although through great tribulation I have uh, been allowed to join you again. Um, so I now uh, would like to move on to uh, the question I, I spoke to you at your president's, uh, president's welcome on the 26th of August and asked you, um, the 4% cap on tuition and fee increases. Um, at the Board of Governors meeting in July, there's a 4% increase in tuition, 4% increase in fees, and then an additional capital improvement fee uh, added to the campus fee portion of the term bill um, that <coughs> increased the, uh, the, um, the total fee increase to 12.5% and the total tuition fee increase to 5.7%. This seems to be in violation of state law, and I know that your answer was that we didn't break any laws, um, and I just would like to know the bases behind that claim. Um, and secondly, on the note of the, uh, the uh, salary freeze, just to explain again uh, how to justify not paying these, uh, these raises, uh, especially the ones that are funded through federal grants and are not affected by the state appropriations to uh, the university. Okay, John, um, I, I <clears throat> may, have addressed that, may have addressed that while you were detained outside the room, but I'll, I'll, I'll go for both of them. 
the, um, the, the cap, the 4% cap on tuition and fees applied to tuition and to education and general fees, E and G fees as they are normally called. Those are the bulk of the fees that Rutgers students have. They cover operating expenses for things of, of importance to your education and to the services, like many of the services that have been mentioned this afternoon. Um, the capital facilities fee, which is new this year to Rutgers, is not part of the E and G fee. It was not capped at 4%, and believe me, we did not violate any state law or any state regulations. We would not have done that. We could not have got away with doing it if we chose to do it. It didn't, it didn't happen. Um, most colleges and universities in New Jersey already have capital facilities fees. This was a new thing for Rutgers, and it's, it's there for a good reason. It helps to pay the debt service on academic facilities that we're still building in spite of the uh, budgetary constraints that I've been describing. So the, uh, the tuition and E&G fees were raised by 4%, exactly consistent with the state regulations, and the capital facilities fee, which was not subject to that 4% cap, uh, provides, meets the needs that I just, that I just mentioned. So we're within the, we're within the bounds of, we're within the bounds of everything. Um, and I, I know you know this because you and I have talked about this. Actually, I've never heard this this line about the ENG fees. It's is not that, a line. It stand for? It's not a line. No, There's, I'm it's... I'm sorry. The, the statement about I All just right. want to know what the ENG fees are. You said educational and general facilities. Um, they're fees that support the university's missions, basic missions of teaching, research, and service. And because they're paid by students, they include they're all for student-related things: computing, health fees, student center and recreation center fees transportation fees, career services, which I mentioned a moment ago, student organizations, and so forth. They're all, they're all the general, general operating elements of the university, but related to our students. They aren't used for research, and they aren't used to pay faculty to teach the courses. They're services related for, for students. Um, the, uh, the, capital, the capital facilities fee is a separate fee, just as, just as the housing and dining fees that students who use those services pay is also separate from the E&G fee. But those are optional and opt-in. They uh, are. So that's They're, what the distinction is. Well, um, it's not optional for our students to use our facilities. They have to to get an education. So that fee will help cover the debt service on them. Okay, now the salaries. Okay, I, I did speak to that before. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do it again. Um, let, me, um, let me affirm, um, uh, for all who may have a concern about this, Rutgers uh, did not violate any of our contracts with our faculty unions. Uh, we'd uh, be in big trouble if we had. All of those, all of those contracts have a provision um, that provides for the withholding of faculty or in staff salary increases in the event of inadequate state funding. Very reluctantly, and with human costs that I described in my remarks, we invoked that, we invoked that provision to uh, respond to the challenges that we're, that we're facing. I understand that uh, union leaders uh, are, are contesting or invoking of that provision, and uh, processes, uh, legally constituted processes, are underway to determine whether we, whether we were right in doing that. Um, but there is, a, there is a contract provision on the basis of which we acted, and uh, let, it be, let it be tested. Well, thank you for uh, responding to these questions. I'll email you after the uh, event uh, in regards to what ENG stands for, and also uh, in regards to why uh, the federal funded and the federal funded grants uh, do, uh, and employees funded under those grants uh, are not <coughs> eligible to receive their pay increases that are paid for by the federal government. Okay. So thank Th you. Thank you, John. Hi, Anthony Esposito. I'm an off-campus representative on RUSA, and I'm a senior in the School of Engineering. I'm 
If the university is not trying to break the unions, why were non-union workers granted their uh, raises and our administration <clears throat> subject to the same pay freezes? The university is absolutely not trying to break the unions. Uh, Rutgers has had, had unions beginning with our faculty union for I think I said 40 years before. It's really closer to 50 years. And while there have been bumps in the road in those relationships, they've worked well both for Rutgers staff and faculty and for the university. Our greatness is because of the outstanding quality of faculty and staff. So there's no intention to break, the, break any unions or violate the contracts. With regard to the small number of Rutgers employees who have individual non-union contracts that provide for a salary increase of, uh, let's say, 3% on July 1st, 2010. I'm just making that up. Those individual non-union contracts do not include the provision that I mentioned a moment ago for withholding pay increases as a result of inadequate state funding. That provision not being there, uh, we had no legal basis on which to withhold those salary increases. And so we thought about it for a while. We consulted with lawyers. We talked with the people involved. And after several months, we recognized the uh, inevitability of paying the increases for those small numbers of, of employees who fall into that category. They have individual non-union contracts that do not contain the clause I mentioned, so we're paying those increases. But paying those increases is a recognition of, our, of a legal obligation. It's not, not in any way, shape, or form an effort to break a union. What was the second question? What, what was the second question? Um, were administration subject oh, yeah, to the pay oh, freezes? Sorry. Absolutely. The, the salary freeze applies completely to all members of the administration, from the president to vice presidents to deans to associate vice presidents. They're, they're, all, subject to the, they're all subject to the salary freeze, every okay. one of us. Hi, my name is Jose Robinson, senior counselor, EOF Rutgers Camden. I have two questions. The first one deals with students. Uh, students are having a difficult time paying their term bills. As a result, many of the students have been deregistered. Some of the students are very weak and they need to have access to Sakai. Is it possible if the student requests that Sakai be continued so that they can do their work? This is for a student who is currently no longer enrolled? No, it's been deregistered for lack of payment. Okay. All right. I, I, I'll look into Sakai. I don't, I don't know the answer to the, okay. that question. I expect the answer is no, but I don't know for sure. Um, we worked very hard. There are, as I said in my remarks, students who um, are, are, are having trouble paying, paying the bills because of circ personal circumstances of all mm -hmm. kinds in this economic environment. We worked very hard with those students to help them to bridge the gap between what they had and what they needed. Rutgers has invested millions of new dollars this year uh, from the 4% tuition increase, as a matter of fact, for need-based scholarship support for students who couldn't pay even that level of tuition increase. I know it's still true that there are some students who nonetheless were deregistered because they couldn't, they couldn't pay the bills. We'll continue to work with them. Whether they can use Sakai under that circumstance, I doubt, but I'll find out. Uh, second question is that as EWF counselor, we've been required to do additional work. HR has said to both Dork and Camden, we deal with the academic transition program. Uh, NORC counselors are teaching. 
HR has told us that that is not in our job description, even though we've been doing it for over five years. What should we do? Well, I think you should continue to work with HR to try to, to, try to work that out. Um, if, it, if this is something that you've been doing historically, here I am pretending to be an HR expert, which I'm most assuredly not. If it's something that you've been doing historically, there ought to be a solution to this, to this problem. But we're required to do this, but we're not acknowledged as having done this. So okay, well, that's a, that's a catch-22 to which Rutgers employees should not be subjected. As you can tell from my answer, I'm not familiar with this particular problem. Okay. I'll be glad to find out about it. Okay, thank you. Okay, good afternoon, Mr. President. Uh, my name is Yusuf Saleh. For those that don't know me, I'm the president of the Rutgers University Student Assembly. I've come here today to uh, discuss a bread-and-butter issue among my constituents. It's been mentioned uh, a little bit before. Basically, last year, students were pushed off campus due to financial reasons and also a broken lottery system. And then they had to live in Cedar Lane or in Highland Park. And I know it was said that it was the most underutilized bus, the L bus was the most underutilized, but my inbox has been telling me a, a different story. And you spoke about careful, uh, carefully chosen directions and decisions, and I feel like the LXC has a similar situation. When it goes down Cedar Lane and it hits Johnson Park, it could make either a left or a right. And it takes the right, and it goes in the most roundabout direction like I've ever taken in my life. I don't know if you've ever taken the LXC, but uh, I, I would like you to try it. Now, if it goes to the left, if it goes to the left, then that would, you know, pick up Highland Park students. I'm just requesting that it takes people from Highland Park, where it used to, and take them to campus. What if Hurricane Earl comes back, like, because... He wants to fool us into a false sense of security. Like, people will have to be walking in the snow in the rain. Like, I feel that's wrong to leave people out in the rain when we're building bus shelters, new bus shelters. Like, I'd rather there'd be a shabby bus shelter and people get to class on time than there'd be a new one and people walk in the rain. Like, have a heart, please. Like, and I'm trying to be civil about this. And, and you are. As you can tell from this question, from many of the questions this afternoon, we're balancing values and we're trying hard to make decisions about the allocation of scarce resources. When you have a, a bus system as big as the one I described, it's multi-million dollars, it carries altogether hundreds of thousands of students each year, adding each individual student up, uh, and when the budget is being cut, and when the buses are costing more than ever to operate, have to make some choices. We made some choices. Our transportation experts, not I, but our transportation experts, made some hard choices to invest in the buses that are most crowded at the peak hours of the week, running between the campuses where classes, classes are held. Inevitably, that meant that not, not every student was served, and this particular case, a bus route had to be, had to be canceled. Um, I, I don't know. You know, it's easy to say, well, you shouldn't have built the bus shelter. But then what about the value that says that the, those who would come to Rutgers and consider, uh, goes, would visit Rutgers and would come consider enrolling here or teaching here are negatively affected by the shabbiness of our campus. So we leave that, that crummy bus shelter up another year and we experience a downside in that. Now, maybe we didn't get that decision right. Maybe the bus shelter should have been delayed for one more year so we could have extended by one year 
the 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 bus uh, the 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 L the L bus route. I don't know. I don't claim we get every single decision right, but but please but please get it that we're balancing some I, really extensive demands. Would you uh, mind if I just okay? Not at all. Uh, I I completely understand that. Like I'm cash trapped as well, but it costs nothing for it to take a left instead of a right. It, I feel like when I took the LXC, it was basically trying to avoid Highland Park. Okay, like, right. I'll tell you I'm what. Um, I don't know that. We'll discuss this. I'm familiar with that Cedar Lane intersection, right, left. Um, uh, I, I'll be glad to have you sit down with one of our transportation experts and explain why the uh, the, the bus takes the route it does. Okay, thank and you, to answer Mr. your President. questions about why it couldn't take the other route. All right, thank you. Um, did you have a question before? Yes, I did. Uh, so why don't we let the people that didn't That's then... That's A-OK. Good afternoon, Mr. President. My name is Joe Bagonis. I am a student in journalism and media studies. I will be graduating with honors after this semester. Uh, my question to you is, why has the budget for the medium been cut so severely? Our budget has been cut from 6000 to $4,500 over the past two years. I believe journalism is the most important part of our democracy. No matter what publication it is, there's training and learning to be involved. I understand that the Targum has a different system of earning money, but other publications have been cut so severe. Okay. Decisions about the funding of student publications rest with students. Um, the student fees are allocated by elected students uh, who make those decisions. And by the way, they're balancing uh, choices that are just as demanding as the ones that I've been describing throughout the afternoon. You've got to go to your fellow students and ask why the medium's allocation went from 6000 to 4500 You've been listening to a rebroadcast of the Rector's President's Annual Address, delivered September 24th by Rector's President Richard McCormick. Uh, my name is Yasmin Fahmi. I'm a junior here at Rutgers University. And my question is, um, do you feel like the rapid growth in the student body is uh, inflating the value of the Rutgers Diploma? And if you agree with that... Is, is um, deflating the value? Is decreasing the value, decreasing the value of okay. the Rutgers Diploma. And if you agree with that, um, what are your <clears throat> plans to combat that? Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's decreasing the value of a uh, Rutgers why? Diploma. Okay, uh, for the reason I explained before. Um, the, increase, the increase of our students, providing it's in carefully selected areas and not just a random everybody comes, uh, brings us the qualities that we want in our student body. Uh, including geographic and ethnic and economic and a myriad of other kinds of diversities, and including scarce revenues. And both of those things improve the quality of your Rutgers education and improve the quality of your Rutgers degree. If you've gone to school with students who are not just like you, you've learned more, and you're readier for the 21st century than you otherwise would be. And if the university has the extra resources, which it does from the increasing numbers of students, then we're better able to meet the needs of all our students. Now, could we carry that point too far? Absolutely. That's why I said we can enroll our way out of these problems. But no, I don't think that to the point we've reached now, your Rutgers degree is impaired by the increased enrollment. On the contrary, I think it's improved. Thank you. Please go ahead over there. Uh, once you're done, you're on. Uh, hi, I'm Christopher Scott. I'm a, uh, a junior here at Rutgers. Um, I was just wondering a question about the football program. Uh, I don't understand why Greg Schiano is paid the salary that he is when it seems like we're cutting funding for professors who do what we say the real work is of this university, which is to educate students. And also, my second question is, 
we before every football game we put up all the uh, the entire football team in the Hyatt for a night before each game to focus focus their energies I guess uh, that costs a lot of money because the Hyatt is uh, you know a, a fairly high class hotel I don't understand why we need to spend that kind of money on football okay <clears throat> First, with respect to Coach Hiano's salary, it's set by Rutgers to be sure, but it's set in a market context, same as the salary of a professor of physics or an executive assistant in the Department of English. He's a, he's it's set in a market. It, uh, let me just finish. It's set in a market context. Um, the salaries of football coaches in top programs are at that level. Indeed, in many instances, they are higher. And in order to retain Greg Schiano and to affirm the values that he's brought to the program, which not only includes good football, but the number one ranking in the academic progress rate of our football program compared to everyone else's in the countries, in order to affirm him and those values and the program, we've decided to pay a market-based rate without which uh, he, he could easily go elsewhere and probably would. As far as the decision to uh, uh, house the football players in a hotel the night before the games, I can't vouch for the reasoning behind that specific decision, but I do know this. Our director of athletics and the football coach have been commanded to, re to significantly reduce the costs of their programs and to bring in additional revenues, and I'm personally holding both of them account for, accountable for doing that. If among the things they choose not to scratch off the list of expenditures for the current year is the housing of students in the hotel the night before the game. Okay, that's fine. They know more about football than I do, um, but they are still responsible for bringing that program in on budget, and I'll hold them accountable for doing that. All right, thank you. No, go ahead. Back, oh, back to me? Okay. Uh, first, I wanted to thank you for doing this, uh, President McCormick. I know you don't have to. Uh, I also wanted to commend you for the Rutgers Against Hunger, uh, Hunger program that you are pushing. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize exactly what's going on. Uh, on all these banners, it says Jersey Roots, Global Reach. Uh, the first one is Jersey Roots, though. And right now in New Jersey, one in ten people is food insecure, which means they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And it's not that all these other causes aren't great, but I think we need to worry about the basics first. And while people argue over buses and everything else, people right now are sitting at home hungry with no food. Uh, they can't afford to feed their kids, and we're arguing about whether a bus makes a left or a right turn. Um, I think I just wanted to say thank you for the support you're giving. Uh, I'm working with an organization right now, the Supervan. It's up for a $50,000 grant. It's going to donate 100% of the profits uh, to Elijah's Promise Local Soup Kitchen and at the same time offer healthy, affordable options to Rutgers campus students, which if you go to the dining halls or go to, I guess, the student center here, you're going to see there are no healthy, affordable options for anyone. So um, I was wondering if you were interested possibly in maybe supporting this cause. We are working with Rutgers Against Hunger, and uh, I think it would make not only Rutgers look good, but everyone involved. It, it sounds like a great program. I suggest that you talk with Leslie Fehrenbach, who's the uh, executive director of Rutgers Against Hunger, and get yourself and your colleagues invited to one of the meetings of the advisory group and present this proposal. Okay. Thank you very much. Hi. Uh, my name is Siddharth. I'm a professor of mathematics and an SAS senator. And um, thank you for coming here and giving, giving the speech and you know, spent taking the time to answer all these questions. I, I had a specific question. Um, it was about, I, I thought that perhaps you would address this in, in, in your speech, but you know, it didn't come up. Could you tell us something about what the civility program at Rutgers is and what it hopes to accomplish? Yeah, I'll be glad to. This is a program that has been launched by Kathleen Hull, 
who is the director of the uh, Byrne uh, First Year Seminars Program. It'll be launched next week, and it will be a, a series of lectures and programs promoting the value of civility, a value, by the way, that's been displayed um, overwhelmingly this afternoon. People at, people at Rutgers have a, have a spirit of civility, but there's always an opportunity to do, to do even better and to make sure that as we interact with each other, especially when we interact with people that we don't agree with, um, and when, our, uh, when our tempers and emotions understandably run high, we nonetheless treat each other with civility. That's what that's about. I hope you'll participate. Absolutely. Hello again, Mr. President. Um, I know that you know by now that patience is a virtue uh, after today, and, and uh, I'm happy to, to wait to ask my follow-up question. I, I appreciate your initial response, but my question was more uh, seeking a response to Governor Christie's assertion that Rutgers brought the idea to be the primary uh, grower of, of medicinal marijuana and essentially have a, a statewide monopoly on it uh, to him before he publicly uh, brought forth the idea, um, only to have Rutgers uh, several weeks later um, back out. Now, based on your comments today, it leads me to believe that that assertion is correct. Um, first question, am I accurate? Is that correct? I, I, think, it, I think it probably is, yes. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think there were probably individuals at, at Rutgers, not known to me, who, uh, who, who, having noticed the state's passage of the Compassionate Marijuana Act, signed by Governor Corzine before Governor Christie uh, took office, noticed that and said, hey, this is a potential opportunity for Rutgers to make a difference it, for the reasons I described before. Uh, um, responding to a need that the people of New Jersey have using scientific and agricultural expertise that Rutgers has. So the idea may well have originated from a good-spirited member of the Rutgers community, um, but then it, then it got looked at carefully, as all good ideas do. It was attractive. It would have helped us meet the need I described before. It would have enabled us further to fulfill our role as the state university. All kinds of positives, positive, positive, but, but it ran into some legal issues and some issues that it, it could have jeopardized our federal funding, so it didn't work out, it didn't work out in the end. Certainly. And, and my second question deals with that process. Um, in that process, were there communications with the Federal uh, Department of Education or Department of Justice seeking some sort of clarification on whether this funding truly would be at jeopardy, and, and, and are there documents to support that? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I believe that most of our communications were with the relevant agency in Trenton uh, concerning it. Um, certainly our lawyers were involved, and their lawyers were involved. I don't know whether they... In, in the end, uh, when we when we focused on the Federal Controlled Substances Act, it was it was fairly it was a fairly straightforward decision that we that we couldn't do it. Whether whether in the meantime there was communication with folks in Washington, I, I don't know the answer to that. Thank you very much, uh, President McCor President McCormick. I already asked you a question that's completely uh, different. Um, I'm now speaking as a member of the Rutgers University Campus Coalition Against Trafficking, and I was and a couple of questions. One. Uh, Straightforwardly, uh, Rutgers, uh, is it a part of the Rutgers agenda to make sure that any investments we make are ethically sound, as in not violate, uh, as in fair trade, to the best of our abilities of our knowledge? Uh, absolutely, also, yes. All right. Also, I just realized this while waiting to ask this question, I was just curious as if to whether, you'd, whether or not you'd be open to some sort of town hall between you and possibly the students and clubs and organizations, because I see all these board members. Thank you all for staying here for this long. 
just waiting and hearing a bunch of questions about certain clubs and organizations and things that deal with just students. And I was figuring maybe it would be prudent if sometime during the semester, during the next semester, we could have some kind of town hall between just the students and you so we could I'm absolutely ready for that. Yes, 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 yes. I'm absolutely ready for that. We made a lot of progress last year in a couple of town hall meetings involving the members of the Rutgers University Student Assembly. I'd like to do the same with groups drawn from the clubs and organizations that you're referring to. Okay. Thank you very much. I also wasn't fully aware of that. I just transferred last semester as well, so, which, by the way, the transfer center, great. I really appreciated how they held me. <laughs> okay. Well, in, invite, me, in, in, invite me to the kind of event that you have in mind. Hi, me again. Uh, I would have been content to sit and sit there quietly, but the, the football thing, just big hot button with me. I think it's probably the same with a lot of other faculty. I don't want to brag. I'm just like anybody else. I'm a, I'm a scientist at Newark. My job is to do research and to get grants. I brought in $5 million direct costs in the last five years. My reward for that has been no raise then a raise defrayed, then a raise canceled. And you say it's because there's a, uh, a clause in the contract with the state of New Jersey that says if the state can't fund the raises, you don't have to pay them. Well, that's a distortion. My understanding is that for the last several years, I'm not sure how many, five or ten years, the state has never fully funded the raises, yet they have been paid until, very, until the last two years. Now you say you cannot pay them. The raises, the $30 million so far, actually this year the raises have not even been announced. The letters usually go out May 1st or something, so no letters this, far, this year. $30 million is only 1.5% of the entire budget. When you needed money for your football stadium, you were supposed to raise the money, but that fell through. The fundraising was a miserable failure, and so Rutgers sold $85 million worth of bonds and bought $17 million worth of commercial paper. You borrowed money. You will do this for a football stadium, but you won't pay your faculty? <laughs> Okay, I've, I've done my best to respond to the points you made about the contract. Let me simply add that uh, the, uh, while it is true that it's been a long time since New Jersey has fully funded staff and, fa sa staff and faculty salary increases at Rutgers, they have partially funded them from time to time. But the bigger point is the, the cumulative decline of state funding to the point where, as I said, we're back to where we were in 1994 in actual dollars. Those aren't inflation-adjusted dollars. And it's like, uh, it's like the last straw. We, we reach the end of the line and so very, very reluctantly invoke the provision that you and I have both referred to. I do understand there's a disagreement about the legality of so invoking it, and that's being tested through various means with, with PERC and in, in arbitration. I know, you, I know you disagree with the decision, but uh, like lots of tough ones before me and us, um, I, I, made, I made choices that I thought were best for Rutgers, and faculty are, are entitled to disagree, and we'll, we'll see how it comes out. Either way, we want the best for our university. Okay. Norman, it's only fitting that we start and we end with you. Okay. As a member of the Executive Council of the AUP-AFT, let me say for the record that uh, these issues are being carried forward before our Labor Relations Board. We reject entirely the analysis that you put forward. But more importantly, more importantly, this was done with absolutely no consultation 
uh, with any of the unions. It was done arbitrarily. It was done with no notification. That is what happened. And uh, frankly, uh, while you've said that you are uh, in no way engaged in a union-busting adventure, uh, frankly, this is the kind of thing uh, that is uh, in line. Your speech reminded me of President Obama. Your policies remind me of Governor Christie. Uh, and your policies also remind me of what one would expect in a right-to-work state, which New Jersey is not. Uh, no consultation with any of the unions. Okay. Norman, I, I hear you. You and I have been colleagues for a long time. We, we respectfully disagree with each other on this one, and there, and there are plenty of ways afoot to, to, to test it, and, and we will. Thank, thanks to everyone for all you do for Rutgers. Motion to adjourn. This is 90.3 The Core. You've been listening to a rebroadcast of the Rutgers President's Annual Address, delivered by Richard McCormick at the Rutgers Student Center on Friday, September 24th. After the address, Dr. McCormick invited any member of the Rutgers community to ask him a question. He stayed until all questions had been answered. You can download a podcast of the President's Address and the question and answer session that followed online at thecore.fm. Click on the link for news and look for President's Address. This is 90.3 The Core. Stay tuned. More great core radio is on the way.